And our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 4. We are reading verses 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful." But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. We got to get better at this one. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we do gather around your word, we give you thanks, for your voice is powerful and effective and accomplishes all that you send it into the world to do. Help us to hear today. Give us those ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a desperate phone call desiring explanation. For several months, we had a young couple in our church that was the perfect target group fit right into the matrix of who we were attempting to reach in Arlington, Virginia. And this young couple began coming and showing interest and asking questions about the gospel. My friend had met her on the playground, and they had uh, developed a friendship and then invited her to church, and they began attending regularly with their young daughter. It was exciting. There were some initial signs that faith was beginning to creep into this couple's lives, and they were becoming consistent. And then there were a series of questions, and they simply stopped attending. My friend called and asked and said, I would love for you to come to church with us this week. And she said, well, you know, I I think we're going to probably do something else. It's just too much. 
Your beliefs are too much. And so my friend called, and she was needing interpretation of what happened. And she asked me, she said, Chuck, what did I do wrong? And when we find ourselves in that situation, as we preach the gospel, as we share the gospel with the world around us, the good news that Jesus is God's true king, reigning over the world, reconciling all things to God, forgiving our sins, healing disease, writing everything, and we'll make a new creation one day, we are going to see different responses. And my friend was asking the question, how do I interpret this response? Did I do something wrong? And friends, it's because of those varied responses to the announcement of King Jesus that Jesus tells this parable of the sower. He gives us an interpretive lens through which to understand the reality that will go on around us as the gospel is preached and proclaimed. Because you see, my friend had done nothing wrong. That actually it was success. The gospel was preached, this couple had been loved, and then they simply chose not to believe and to go another direction. And when we go out preaching the gospel as a community, as we engage Jesus' kingdom mission to spread the gospel to all the nations, we need this interpretive lens because when Jesus shows up and his word is powerfully working, this is what we will see. Four different kinds of seed. And so look at the four options as the word is planted. The first, the seed is planted along the path. You find this in verse 4 and then again in verse 15 when Jesus retells the parable. He says, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. This is fairly easy to understand what Jesus is pointing to, that some people are simply hardened to the gospel and have no interest in it. Jesus attributes that there are spiritual forces at work in verse 15. What he says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so there's just resistance. There is a hardness. There is a lack of interest in the gospel. This is the first thing that happens when the word is proclaimed. There are those that are along the path. The second seed is the kind that lands on rocky ground, verses 5 and 6. Other seed fell on rocky ground. And where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. This is slightly more difficult. Jesus explains that there was joy. There appeared to be believing in faith. And then in verses 16 and 17, And those are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so this seed encounters difficulty and rigor and ends up dying. It doesn't persevere. A third seed is one that falls amongst the thorns, Jesus says. Perhaps even more difficult for us to hear. In verse 7, he says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And then he elaborates further in verses 18 and 19. 
and others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus says this too will happen. Some will believe, and they will believe for a brief time. Some will perhaps believe for an extended period of time, but fail to persevere and bring forth fruit to maturity. And then finally, Jesus says, some seed will fall into the good soil. Look with me in verses 8 and 20. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And so this is how Jesus explains the reality that begins to take place when the gospel is preached. And anyone who is engaged in sowing the word in the world has seen these realities unfold. And so experientially, we know this is true. But theologically, it raises questions. And this morning, we need to carefully work through those questions as much as we can. Because one of the biggest questions upon hearing the parable of the sower for many is how do we know the difference between the seed planted on the rocky soil, amongst the thorns, and on the good soil? How do we know the difference between seed that lands in those places? The first seed along the path is easy enough to understand. But Chuck, when it comes to this matter of the rocky soil, something that appears to have life that's choked out, something amongst the thorns that appears to have more life that ends up not making it, and then something that produces 30, 40, 60, 100-fold fruit, how do you know the difference? And the most demanding thing is that at planting, and perhaps even over a long period of time, it's not incredibly clear the difference. The difference in the seeds lies in the future. It lies in the performance of the seed and whether it brings forth fruit to maturity. Some seed fails to bring forth fruit into maturity, and others is incredibly, incredibly fruitful. And friends, that is the difference. Seed that perseveres, that brings forth fruit, it's worked out over time. And what Jesus is saying is that authentic faith hears the gospel, accepts it, and brings forth fruit. Look what he says in verse 20. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. He's making it plain that there are types of faith that go on in response to the gospel that are not saving faith. Because saving faith does this. It hears, it accepts, and it goes on to bear fruit in time. And it's so important for us to hear this. Because do you see that Jesus does not base faith on a one-time transaction that takes place? He's mature and he's wise and he understands the nature of our world. That a one-time transaction can be an important event in life, but it's nothing to base our assurance on in the ongoing Christian life. 
As important as it can be to share a testimony of faith, a conversion story, or to go through a class where you come into the membership of a church, as important as those events are, they are not the thing that we build our, the basis of our assurance on. That assurance for Jesus is based on this true, authentic, fruit-bearing faith that demonstrates itself, evidenced in fruit-bearing And friends, this is what Jesus says, that a lively, active faith is true saving faith. And so the most important thing is the possession, the lively possession of faith. Many people ask me the question about my own children, and they'll say, Chuck, have your children become Christian? And I'll tell them that um, I believe they are. Well, when did they say the prayer? We didn't do that. And sometimes I get puzzled, look, and some, some of you are giving me that look right now. That the most important thing for me with my children in nurturing them as Christians is not to drive them to a moment where they utter certain words of a prayer, but the most important thing for me is that there is the presence of an active faith, that they are demonstrating the fruits of obedience, that they are following Jesus, that they know that Jesus died for their sins and they're confessing that, and they're living in that active faith. And friends, sometimes getting focused upon the transaction, we forget that it is the transformation, the unfolding of faith that Jesus points to as the seed that is persevering. And so it is the possession of faith, the evidence of that being borne out in fruit that Jesus says differentiates the fourth from the second and the third seed. And so many people at this point ask this question. They say, well, Chuck... We say that salvation is by grace through faith. And you're saying that salvation is by grace through faith plus fruit-bearing. Explain that. How is fruit-bearing part of the equation of what we believe as Protestants, as what we believe as as people who say salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone? Where does fruit-bearing fit in? And it's important to note that Jesus says that faith saves He shows up preaching the gospel, and what is his message? Repent and believe. And then in chapter 5, Jesus is going to heal a woman, and he says, your faith has saved you. Jesus is not retreating on that. But Jesus still says that authentic faith evidences itself in fruit-bearing. So he isn't saying that fruit saves, but he is saying that spiritual fruit evidences our faith in him. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, said it very succinctly when he said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. That faith creates good works. That faith leads us in that fruit-bearing direction. And one of the important things for us to distinguish here is that in the Bible, belief is never just intellectual assent. The word simply didn't work that way in the Hebrew world, that belief was never simply saying, oh, yes, I believe in the existence of something. And friends, it doesn't really work like that for us in most things either. Now, you can't see him, but I could tell you, I believe in Bob Bush, because Bob Bush is located in the sound booth. And you could say, well, Chuck is saying he factually believes in Bob Bush because he can see him as a person. 
Or I could say, I believe in Bob Bush. And some of you would understand what I was saying. That I believe in Bob Bush. I entrust myself to Bob Bush. I entrust myself to Bob Bush every Sunday that he's going to turn my mic off while we are singing hymns. Because it would be awful for you and for me. I had that happen during one wedding, and it's, it's not a moment I desire to relive. But I believe in Bob Bush because he has the character, he has the experience, he has the training, and week by week he is servant of this church to sit in the sound booth and control the sound. He gives of himself. I believe, I entrust myself to Bob Bush. We use the word belief like that. I believe in a political candidate. I believe in my church. We use belief in all kinds of ways. And friends, this is the Bible's sense of belief. It is to trust oneself. So when Jesus is calling for repentance and faith, he isn't calling us, he's calling us to entrust ourselves to him. That we sign up, that we receive the forgiveness of sins. We don't just merely intellectually assent, but we are committed to him because of his great commitment to us. And that is how fruit-bearing works in the life of faith. Thomas Cranmer, who was one of the English martyrs uh, during the first generation of the Reformation, he gets it right. Cranmer, because there were a lack of uh, pastors in the church, he wrote a series of sermons for a church when they didn't have a pastor, so a sermon could at least be read. They were called the homilies, and one of them was on faith, and one of them was on, on good works. A few years ago, I was reading these sermons just to, for, uh, for material to see how these themes were worked, and it was really fascinating because in Cranmer's sermons, on the sermon on faith, he emphasizes the necessity of good works. And then in the sermon on good works, he emphasizes the necessity of being forgiven. And friends, he gets it just right. <laughs> that our good works always flow from faith. They don't save us. But true saving faith is always followed by good works, by fruit bearing. And that good works can never leverage God, and you can never gain a way into heaven because of your goodness. That there must be forgiveness. There must be active faith. And he drives right down the middle in a beautiful way in the middle of the, in those sermons. And so true, lively, saving, authentic faith always works itself out in fruit. And so the next question that people typically ask, though, and it is a sincere question, is what types of issues then can challenge the sincerity of my faith? Because Jesus says there are things that can choke people out. There are things that show that we never had true, sincere, lively faith. He's not saying that you lose your salvation. He's just saying that your faith turns up to have not been sincere faith. So what are the types of things that challenge the sincerity of our faith? It's two major things that he points to. You find the first in verse 16 and 17, and this is the seed that's planted on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
And so what can challenge the sincerity of our faith? It's simply this. There are social pressures that descend upon us from a world that doesn't share our convictions in the gospel. It says there are tribulation and persecution. That is simply people who don't agree with you can put pressure on you that causes you to cave in. And you begin to accommodate your faith and eventually you disown that faith. Now typically in our cultural context, the way this works out is that labels are applied. And labels are applied that bring shame upon you for being identified as a Christian. And those labels at time have an extreme stigmatizing effect and begin to psychologically play with people. And suddenly they find themselves accommodating their beliefs about the gospel to the culture around them. And you've probably seen it play out because it's an unfortunate reality of when the word is preached as to what happens. And friends, how do you respond to the pressure? How do you respond to the labels? Some people get angry. Some people get depressed. One of the things Jesus is doing for us is don't be surprised when you feel that. Because a good fourth seed that's bearing fruit is going to feel the pressures of these things. And it's going to persevere and make it through. That the tribulation, the trial that it's part of the Christian life. Think of the great work, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, persevering through all the mess, but feeling the weight. And friends, so how do you handle the labels, the shame and the pressure that can be put on you for identifying with Christ? It's a natural part of the Christian life. And are you surprised by it? And then do you simply give up? Do you begin to accommodate your beliefs? Because those are real issues for us. They've been real issues for the church all throughout its existence. But the second is this, the second thing that challenges the sincerity of our faith. There are issues within our own personal affections. They rise from within our hearts. Look what Jesus says in verse 19. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What killed off this seed from maturity? The cares, riches, and desires for other things. They were not external pressures. They were internal loves, things that arise from within our heart where we attach ourselves to things in the world and we begin to love those things more than we love God and His Word. They begin to trump and dominate us. We begin to say yes to them and we say no to God. We obey them rather than obeying God. Many people ask though, well, what does that mean? Are we allowed to love anything in the world? Or do we simply have to be ascetic at this point? Am I going to always be in danger of being like the third seed because I love my wife or I love my children or I love my job or I love my yard? Am I not allowed to enjoy things inside of God's creation? And many have read these verses and come to that conclusion. But it's clear in the Bible that that's not the right answer. 
That God is not telling you that you have to be ascetic and that you have to sit loose on everything in the world and that you can't love it. That you have to hold it at bay because it's dangerous. Augustine nails this so beautifully in the Confessions. He says, if you find pleasure in bodily things, praise God for them and direct your love to their maker, lest because of things that please you, you may displease Him. And friends, this is the great challenge for us as creatures inhabiting God's creaturely world is that God gives us a good world to enjoy. And we are to return thanks to God for all that He gives us, and we are to enjoy it. But those gifts are not to trump our loyalty to God that we are to obey Him, that we're not to obey our desires for things that can become over-desires, and we become captivated and overcome by God's good gifts. And everything, absolutely every good thing in your life has the capacity to become this for you. And that is the most frightening thing for us. And that God's best gifts have the capacity to become gods and idols that we worship in front of. And we can be carried away by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. And Jesus says it chokes us out. It makes us unfruitful. And so, friends, we always must be on guard, knowing that this is a real reality that plays out. And we must be willing to examine ourselves and humble ourselves in front of God. And when we find our heart straying, which in the life of any Christian happens, that we humbly confess our sins, look to God for mercy, and ask for His Spirit to strengthen us. And so some of you at this point are probably deeply troubled. And my experience with preaching through the parable of the sower is that those who are deeply troubled need not be troubled, and perhaps those who should be contemplating it more don't really contemplate it at all. I know that this is anxiety-producing, but it is Jesus' Word. It's His explanation. And so some will ask, well, if the third seed chokes out, is there any hope for anyone? Can anyone be sure? Are we all going to be kind of anxious wrecks waiting to see if God approves of us or not? Waiting to see whether we bore fruit and had authentic faith. What, if any, security does God give to His people? Two important pastoral things for us to discuss. The first is this. And this comes straight out of our confession of faith, the Westminster tradition. And it says this, assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. This is extremely important on the pastoral level. And friends, faith can exist and be alive and well, and assurance can be waning. And the writers of the Westminster Confession knew that, that there were seasons in life where our assurance would wax and it would wane. And it doesn't mean that you've lost faith just because you're in a moment where you're asking questions of, are you a fourth seed? 
And so we need to separate those things at time. A good, true, lively faith will yield assurance over time where we know that Christ saves us and we know and trust in His activity in our lives. The writers of the Confession make it clear that the foundation of assurance is the promises of God, it's the inward testimony of the Spirit in our hearts assuring us, and then it's the external manifestation of fruits, what Jesus speaks of here. And that those three work in concert and they complement one another. And so assurance grows and builds throughout the Christian life. And it becomes this unassailable fortress where we know of God's great love and His presence in our lives. But there are times and seasons where it can be incredibly difficult. And so they have a very nuanced conversation there where they say that assurance can be diminished because of sin. It can be diminished because of negligence. It can be diminished because of temptations that we're flirting with. And on the practical level, any Christian has experienced that. But then they turn and say that assurance is possible and it's real and it's God's gift. And by the use of the ordinary means that God gives us, that is through reading His Word, that is through prayer, that's through participating in the sacraments of the church, that we build up and grow our assurance. And it gives us confidence that we're not that second seed, that we're not that third seed, that God is actively at work. And of course God forgives our sins and He rescues us from many dangers and perils. John Newton, who wrote one of the hymns that we sang this morning, it's a beautiful hymn. He's also the author of Amazing Grace. He was a pastor in the Church of England, one of their greatest lights. And he says this about assurance. He was writing William Wilberforce's aunt, and he writes to her. He says, assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. He was saying that assurance is something that builds, that it grows, that it gains mass and picks up momentum and becomes an unstoppable force in the life of the Christian as we experience God's goodness and His power to save us from all temptations and trials as He works in our life, as He's merciful and tender with us. And so that's the first thing. Assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. And the second is this. Assurance does belong to those who persevere in faith. The Apostle John writes this very short letter at the close of the New Testament. And this is what he says at the end in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things in order that you may know you have eternal life. And so John was writing about the topic of assurance. In other words, he's saying that is God's gift and God does extend that assurance to you. And throughout the letter, he's been writing the things that build towards assurance. And what he says is that assurance is built on faith in Jesus. It's built on whether um, you love your neighbor and whether you're following God in obedience to his commands. He cycles through those three arguments over and over for five chapters. Then he writes those words, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. And what John is pointing to is not perfect behavior. He's not saying that you're just blameless and squeaky clean, and then you can know that you're going to have eternal life. That's not the way it works. 
He speaks of confessing and forgiving and asking for forgiveness in chapter 2, and he says that none are righteous and beyond the need of that help. But what John is speaking of is the trajectory of life that bears fruit, and that when that life goes wrong, there is confession. That's a natural part of the Christian life. That's why we do it every week, repairing yourself to God, acknowledging your sins, living in humility in front of Him. And then there is this growing trajectory of obedience. And friends, that is the normal Christian life. God working with us, God working in us. At times, we struggle and we recover and grow. And at times, we struggle. And our experience of it can be rather chaotic. And it feels very up and down. And it feels like a roller coaster. And what God is asking us to focus on is the trajectory that goes like this. And that the up and down is a real part of still living in a fallen and broken world. But Christ's presence in your life, the Spirit's capacity to create fruit that is the work of God in you, this is what builds assurance. And so what is the trajectory of your life? Where does it point? Does it point to the fact that the desires, riches, and pleasures of life have overtaken you? That you functionally obey those more than you obey God? That is just the call to turn. When we feel that, it's just simply the call to turn. That ultimately Jesus gives us these categories, not so that we can label one another, as fun as that may be for some of you. He doesn't give you these categories for that reason, but they are a diagnostic tool for us to say we want to be sown in good soil. And good soil accepts the Word. It hears it and it bears fruit. God, help me bear that fruit. Lead me in the path and way of repentance. Lead me through the trials Help me not accommodate my faith. Help me not get lost in loving your good gifts in this world and being overcome by them. Turn my path. Friends, in persevering, we are reliant upon the grace of God. It's to hang in that grace, to fully depend upon it, knowing that God must breathe every bit of life into you for that perseverance to be taken place. And that... All that is the messy reality of Jesus entering into the world and preaching the gospel. It's the messy reality that unfolds around us as we preach King Jesus. There'll be some who don't care. There'll be some who have an initial joy who then simply turn away. There will be some who will be among us and seem to have maturity and fruit who get choked out. And then there are some over time who in the steady, patient faithfulness of God bear fruit. 30, 40, 60, even 100 fold. And our prayer and assumption is that that is the life of this body in a judgment of charity that this is what God is doing in each of us. And He gives us a wonderful path of being able to diagnose and ask where we need to self-correct. And so let's trust Him to do that.